is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. Good afternoon. It's Thursday the 19th of January. Michelle Stanley with you and it is great you can join me. At this time of year, aside from tropical fruit maybe, it's not too common to see too much going on in the paddock. But one fruit and veggie grower is giving some wet season trials a crack. The plants look absolutely amazing right now where, where it's all at, you know, and if you dig around there's worms everywhere and stuff. The, the patch looks looks very exciting, like we can see that we definitely get some production and they're, they're looking good for me. Will it be worth it in the long run though? That is the question. You'll hear more about it before one o'clock. Also today, you're going to step onto a live export vessel. As an industry in Australia, we talk a lot about feeding the world, but I've got a really unique role that I'm able to, I'm sort of the middleman, I'm, I'm helping us get those animals over to those plates overseas. And yeah, and I, as I said, just have respect for the animal itself. So I, I think it's a really, really important role. You get a taste of life on board that live export vessel before half past one and how that young woman in particular is helping to train stockies from right around the world. If you'd like to get in touch with the program today and share your thoughts on the Country Hour, 0487991057 is the SMS. First up today, though, let's start with some property news. Mountain Valley Station in central Arnhem Land has been leased by an ASX-listed agribusiness. Dan Fitzgerald joins me in the studio. Dan, tell us about Duxton Farms. Yeah, so Duxton Farms has signed a five-year lease on Mountain Valley Station, which is a uh, 140,000 hectare property out to the northeast of Catherine. Uh, If you drive out to Nullumboy, you'd uh, drive straight past the front gate there. Um, So Duxton Farms, it's headquartered in South Australia and it owns a bunch of properties in New South Wales and Victoria where it grows a range of summer and winter crops including things like cotton, maize, wheat, sorghum as well as running some sheep and cattle on those properties. And in an update to the ASX, the company has said it leased Mountain Valley here in the Territory out of the need for geographic diversification of its agricultural portfolio. Uh, The statement says, uh, the board holds the view that the Northern Territory's land and water resources are fundamentally mispriced relative to their productive potential. Oh, so what are Duxton's plans for Mountain Valley? Uh, Well, I I should point out that we um, asked Duxton for an interview, but they didn't make anyone available. However, they did answer some questions in writing. So Duxton Farm says it plans to develop a broadacre cropping program at Mountain Valley with the hope of eventually growing cotton. A spokesman for the company said... Uh, Duxton will look to expand the station's cattle program by converting grazing land to dryland cropping land to grow fodder crops such as millet, lucerne and sorghum, which will underpin an increased carrying capacity. Uh, They went on to say that in the longer term, however, the board's strategy is to unlock significant value in the region's rainwater resources by trialling the cultivation of rain-fed cotton. Now, uh, just how big they will go on cotton, um, I did ask that, and the response was that uh, it's too early to say, but cotton trials would likely start in the tens and hundreds of hectares and moving up from there depending on the project's agronomic success. 
There's been a lot of criticism recently about the development of a cotton of cotton in the territory. So, what did they have to say about any environmental concerns about the crop? Yeah, so Duxton Farm said it would focus on rain-fed cotton and quote work with the natural environment in its development of broadacre cropping there at Mountain Valley. Uh, the spokesperson for the company went on to say, uh, Duxin is focused on capturing and harnessing resources which are abundant rather than extracting and exploiting resources that are not. They went on to say that growing cotton in the Northern Territory should be regarded as part of a transfer in Australia's agricultural industries of thirsty crops from areas currently under water stress, meaning Southern Australia, uh, to those with renewable water resources. Um, yeah, so Duxton Farms, an ASX-listed company um, with uh, a lot of resources around Australia, now looking to um, come to the Northern Territory. Mountain Valley Station, it's actually owned by two of the members of the board of Duxton Farms, and uh, the company has, has now leased it. Um, yeah, so if you want to read more on that story, there's an online article up on the ABC News page right now. Very good. Thank you for that, Dan. It's 25 to 1. Hi, my name is Lily Rose Carey. I'm 12 and I live on Kalala Station and you're listening to The Country Hour. Well, Michelle Stanley with you. Good to have you along today. The Department of Industry is offering Northern Territory farmers free ginger plants to trial the crop. The ginger plants have been propagated in a laboratory, laboratory with tissue culture, so they're guaranteed to be disease-free. Alan Nasoli from the Plant Industries Group showed Dan Fitzgerald the ginger plants on offer. Yeah, so in front of us we've got around 2,000 um, tubes of uh, Canton ginger uh, and these are, are ginger plants that have been produced in the tissue culture lab so they're disease-free plants and we're basically offering them, these plants to growers that um, want to have a go at growing uh, and trialling this, this variety here in the Territory. And how old are these plants in front of us here? They're fairly tall at the moment, they're sort of 20 or 30 centimetres um, out of their little pots. Yeah, so these are tissue cultured plants. So basically, they're 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 plants that have been grown essentially in a test tube in the lab. Um, so the whole process um, from initiation in the lab is takes about twelve months. So all of these uh, these pots here, they're they're probably about twelve to eighteen months old. And tell us about that tissue culture growing. What's special about that? So tissue culture essentially it, it's a means of. Um, growing a large volume of material in aseptic conditions. So it's, it's, it's a way of uh, propagating clones of uh, apparent material that are disease-free, basically. In terms of growing these plants uh, in the lab, uh, how is it done? Yeah, well, basically um, the tissue culture process involves taking a small sample of um, the parent material and essentially growing it in artificial um, conditions. So with, with the gingers, we take a small piece of the rhizome. Generally, it's a piece of um, a, a, a growing bud and um, we basically grow that. We, we tri- we'll, first of all, we, we clean and dis- uh, sterilise the material and then we'll actually transfer that into a test tube containing a growth medium, uh, which generally consists of... Um, macro and micronutrients and vitamins as well as some growth um, regulators. So the medium causes proliferation of the cells and causes new, sh- new shoots to form and that's what we call the initiation um, stage. From After that we, we basically incubate the, the plants at 25 degrees and uh, um, under lights for 16 hours a day. 
and we transfer them into a multiplication medium to proliferate more um, more shoots and more buds and then we basically subdivide those those buds and those shoots into into other test tubes so if we've actually multiplied the, the volume of material that we've got um, they're then um, transferred into a rooting medium which induces roots um, to develop and then when we have well-developed massive roots we will transfer them out into a pot out in in the orchard and why is it so important to have ginger assured that it is disease free are they is it a particularly susceptible um, plant to disease yeah, um, traditionally ginger's grown out in the field, um, pr- predominantly in Queensland, um, and there are, there are a number of soil-borne uh, pathogens that do affect ginger. So things like pythium, uh, fusariums and some nematodes uh, will all affect ginger and, and affect productivity. So these plants here, uh, they're available for Northern Territory farmers to, to give a crack at. Uh, why should they be having a go at ginger? Oh, look, we, we think there's a lot of potential in ginger. The market, like I said, the market's dominated by... Um, you know the growers in Queensland uh, we've got the right conditions for growing ginger uh, it thrives in the tropics and you know the prices that they fetch um, are reasonable. Whereabouts in the territory do you think this these ginger plants might grow well? Yeah that's they're some of the questions we're trying to answer and uh, it's the reason why we're offering some of this material to farmers so you know we can test and um, and find out you know, uh, the best places to grow ginger. But um, I think uh, ginger potentially can be grown throughout the Territory. If farmers want to get involved with this trial, uh, will they have any responsibilities to the department? No, there's no IP restrictions on the material, so farmers can propagate, grow and sell the material as they, as they, as they see, see fit, basically. There's no requ- uh, reporting requirements um, f- from, from our point of view. Um, we just want farmers to go out and plant the material and assess it. And um, We would like some feedback on, on some of the, some of the, um, the outcomes of, and, and how they established, uh, but no real reporting requirements as such. And you'll be giving a, a little bit of uh, planting advice? Uh, yes, we will be put, or currently putting together a package of information um, which we'll, uh, we'll give to the growers that sign up uh, for the material. And so these plants, they will be able to be grown just out in the paddock in the soil, but uh, also in a sort of uh, potted yeah. structure? Yeah, that's right. So we'll, um, um, part of the uh, information package, um, we'll actually um, give them information on um, growing them uh, traditionally out in the field, as well as... Um, uh, in a container-based production system. Alan Nasholi is a se- Senior Technical Officer with the Plant Industries Group at the Department of Industry. So if you're keen to give Ginger a crack in the top end or in the Territory, uh, just get in touch with the Department of Industry and you can get some free ginger plants to trial. And on the topic of ginger, an organic farmer is giving it a crack to grow ginger in the wet season, Steph and Bluey out at Organic Australian Grown in Humpty Doo have planted a few trial crops this wet season to see if they can get some productivity out of the land over summer. I headed out to catch up with Bluey to find out how it's all going. Oh, we just planted some uh, pupus just to see. We planted like 10 plants last year and they gave us really good production in July, August. And now we planted a, an acre of purpose to see if that could be part of our local on sale. That's, that's, we got some purpose and we got planted a, a 50 metre row of lemongrass. Just because as a farmer you want to grow something which grows well, we can maybe only sell one plant worth of lemongrass. But it just feels good planting something this time of the year what thrives. 
That means we've got porpoise, we've got lemongrass. We did have some yam bean seedlings. Yam bean is a bit like a... It's a totally different product than potato, but we call it a bit of like a tropical potato because I don't know if anybody... Yam bean is, is a... It kind of looks like a radish and it tastes a bit like a carrot kind of and it, it's it's very low in carbs and stuff and it's a it's a really interesting product for us but we try and try to do it twice now and and every time we had only 10% germination and then when we planted it out we had very good production but every time we plant some in the seedlings and grow seedlings we only end up with 10-15 plants and never never worse was doing that's kind of everything we got in the ground at the moment and I th- we don't really sure what can be grown we planted a bit of uh, yeah that's right we planted a bit of ginger just to see if it goes but we wanted to see if it can be grown in the sun with the cloudy weather and stuff and underneath the porpoise but because the porpoise are so young we planted the ginger under the porpoise but the porpoise are young not giving enough shade now the ginger really struggles that means we in the moment we just hope it still will survive but we know it needs to be in the shade, but we were hoping it will work through all the rainy weather that the porpoise get big enough and give it enough shade later. So these have been in the ground for a few weeks? This, we, me and Steph planted this uh, three weeks ago. We, we, yeah, we planted this three weeks ago. And we planted the thing and put lots of mulch down and, and really try to work with the rain, not using plastics or anything like that. So we just kind of hoping from now onwards you plant it and it established well just by nature with rain and stuff and and uh, we used lots of mulch to give us weed control that we have not have the workload to clean it and manage it. Is it difficult being an organic farmer trying to grow something in the wet? I mean a lot of people would think of pests would be a big problem at this time of year. Is, is that something you're having to overcome? It's an interesting question. I always say it's not that we can't do it, it is just we haven't got the knowledge because we don't have enough people doing it. That is our biggest problem. Right now we don't really understand what crops can we grow. You go to talk to people and they say, you can grow zucchini, you can grow cucumbers, you can grow all this stuff. Every time you plant it, it grows crazy like tomatoes but no fruit. And I don't think it can be done, it's just finding the right variety, finding all this. Like right now as an organic farmer, I would stand here and say, commercially viable, there's nothing beside bananas and pawpaws. All the rest is to find varieties and all that. It can take years for you to find a commercial variety. It gives you consistent yields and gives you consistent return. And that's why growing anything from, say, uh, 20th of October until 20th of April, it's very challenging. It's very challenging because the pest pressure... People always think, think it's a, you grow a product and you get wiped out by pests, like an organic. In the last five years, really, we haven't had an insect pest, pest what kind of wiped us out. It handicapped, it decreased your yields. But that's really, the biggest problem is really for us to understand how to create enough yields, to create enough energy in the ground to make the crop grow. We can grow amazing crops, but it doesn't give us much production. And that's always been because we don't have conventional fertilizers and we're always on the low side of production. But it's, it's, it's very often more the low yields what restricts us and not disease pressure. 
on the Country Hour. You're with Michelle Stanley and you're hearing from Bluey out at Organic Ag, Organic Australian Grown, 70 k's out of Darwin. We're looking at a couple of um, wet season trials of pawpaws, lemongrass in particular. And the pawpaws you have here, so a few weeks in and, and I'm guessing you've got a little way to go before you really know, but what's your feeling at this stage a couple of weeks in? Oh, the look. Look, we lost quite a bit at the very start. We lost quite a bit through uneven seedlings. You know, we just had little seedlings and they they kind of died. And we we lost maybe uh, 15%, 20% at planting. But what is there now, the leaf size is the dark green leaves with pink stems and thick, thick trunk. The plants look absolutely amazing right now where where it's all at you know and if you dig around there's worms everywhere and stuff the the patch looks looks very exciting like we can see that we definitely get some production and and uh, they're they're looking good for me do you think it's something you're hoping to be able to do on a more significant scale if, if it does work out well this year i have to honestly say to you i still split mine it in are we better off including animals or growing pasture or hay or wet season grains in air-conditioned tractor and growing organic intensive because every time we come into November, labour struggles. And labour is very, as a boss, as an owner of this business, you always end up on a Sunday doing irrigation, you're out there doing. And for me to understand, do I want to grow a crop in the months? I still not commenced because we are kind of a veggie grower short-term crops and i like machinery and we like you know growing crops intensively like like maybe could grow organic soya beans or we could find some crops which we can grow or grow cover crops to make compost there's uh, there's so many options there but for me having people in the field these days so i would say in an eight hour day we get four hours work done just because the demand is so high. People come for two days and they're overwhelmed, they get sick, they have to drink 10 litres of water a day. It's just, it's just too hard to run people. That's why I wouldn't... In the moment, it's just a trial. We grow some purpose. If they go well and you work in the shade and maybe it's, it's worth doing. But in the moment, it's just a trial to have something in August boxes and, uh, and another product. But I'm not... I'm, I don't have any plan to grow five-hectare purpose. So it might be possible but maybe just not desirable exactly right possible but not desirable that's right and that's you have to you know you always think if somebody is keen and you get a good worker and you think oh no it's but i can see myself or my workforce always everybody struggles and it's it's just something you better see him in an air-conditioned tractor that's Volker Stodd, or Bluey, as you probably know him. Best is from Organic Ag in Humpty Doo, trialling out some pawpaws, lemongrass, ginger and yam beans um, just out of Darwin. And we've had a text from Stephen and Catherine. He has grown ginger and yam beans in Catherine, but they didn't work. Maybe you've got some advice. Maybe you've me- been able to get yam beans to work. Bluey couldn't. How's your ginger going? If you've given that a crack, let me know. 0487 991057. Trying to find ways to get some productivity out of the land during the wet season. You're listening to The Country Hour. Michelle Stanley with you this afternoon. This is Keith Urban. It's called What About Me? It's 7 to 1. That's Keith Urban. What About Me? You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. 
Prices for some fish lines have jumped 20% in the West as a result of ex-tropical cyclone Ellie. You heard earlier in the week that the cyclone and the floods in WA and the monsoon, which impacted the north of the Territory at the end of December, was causing a few issues for fishing vessels in the top end. The fact that the the Fitzroy crossing bridges out has created problems um, when we unload our vessels in Darwin, for example, we can't move freight down the west western seaboard now. We have to freight down through the middle of Australia into Port Augusta and then the freight will get pulled west from there. So we can still do it. It just takes a day or two longer and there's, of course, an added freight cost for us. And according to Theodore Kalis, who's a fish buyer and marketer based in Perth, the impact on the other end of the supply chain in the Perth markets has been significant. We had a number of boats that were unloading into Broome and that fish was diverted to the east coast via Darwin. So that's fish that otherwise would have come into the Perth markets. From our own point of view, it was potentially about 15 tonne of fish that was thereabouts diverted. And where it ended up, I'm not 100% sure, but very little of it got into Perth. And we sort of say in the industry loosely that 10% too much is a glut and 10% too little is a famine. So we have a very small sort of tolerance up and down. And when there are interruptions to it, it does have a disruptive effect on supply lines. And, you know, the demand is still there, but the supply isn't. And is that recovered at all? Are you still seeing that sort of shortage from that event a couple of weeks ago? Look, it's just starting to loosen up now. Obviously, vessels had to come in for safety reasons. They're unloading part of their load, uh, so not a full catch. And roads are still closed. They're slowly opening up. But, you know, that product otherwise has moved. Now, boats have had to go back out to sea. So there's still a bit of a lag. So, you know, I guess a a one-week event of significance can have another further week or two-week even lag time of impact to replenish the supplies into the market but it has loosened up and what has that done to prices look it's had an impact obviously when you you know reduce the supply by significant volumes then the demand is still there we obviously we're in still what we loosely call again that the festive season we're still in in that summer period we've got chinese new year coming up this weekend officially starting so the demand for seafood is definitely peaks. What sort of percentage would you say prices have gone up by? It's not across the board, it's different species, but the species that are unique to the northwest, there may have been a, a 15 to 20% adjustment in the marketplace. We've heard from some fishermen out of the Northern Territory who would typically send their excess produce from Darwin to Perth via the Kimberley. Now they can't do that and they, they're having to go the long way around through South Australia. Do you deal with any companies like that or are you feeling the effect of that extra distance of that long freight haul from the Northern Territory? Yes and yes, we deal with those companies. Um, And yes, we are feeling the effect of it because there's obviously a delay in that fish that otherwise would have arrived during the middle of the closures and the event, the flooding events. So that fish was delayed and in some cases never made it to Perth. And then we've got a backlog of fish that otherwise would have been either caught, wild caught or harvested through some of the farms up there, the Barramundi farms. So there is a backlog to that. And yes, it does have a definite effect on the availability within the Perth market. And that road in between or in the Kimberley, the Fitzroy Crossing Bridge and large parts of the Great Northern Highway look like they'll be out for some time. Do you expect that impact to be felt in the market as well for some time? 
Well, for as long as the roads are closed and freight access is limited, then there will be an ongoing impact. But my understanding is there are other options that are being looked at and, and already in play to alleviate the extent of that impact. So we work very closely with the freight companies and with the fishermen to try and get the logistics right. And if that means boats do shorter trips and come into Darwin quicker and then down to South Australia and across, then that's one option. But, you know, that's something that the freight companies obviously work very closely with to try and ensure that the supplies are as least impacted as possible. But it just shows about the sensitivity of our supply lines and how we are dependent on. And it goes to, you know, that food security, I guess, which is a catchphrase that is not just loosely applied, it's, it's true. We rely on good transport and good infrastructure to ensure good regular and stable supplies so that there's not dramatic fluctuations. We're far better off and any marketplace is better off when there's stability. So the stability is critical. Theodore Kalis is the director of Kalis Brothers and the AJ Langford Perth Fish Market, speaking with Steph Sinclair. And there's more of that story online if you search for the ABC News website. Forestry company Midway Limited, which runs the forestry plantations on the Tiwi Islands, has been issued an infringement notice by ASIC. Dan Fitzgerald, what can you tell us? Yeah, so Midway has paid a $33,000 infringement notice over some concerns raised by ASIC that it failed to comply with its continuous disclosure obligations as being a public company. Uh, ASIC alleges that on the 11th of February, February, Midway became aware that sales revenue for the first half of the 22 financial year had dropped nearly 40%. That's uh, materially lower than the previous corresponding period. However, Midway did not announce this revenue downturn to the ASX as it was required to. Um, ASX alleges that Midway was required to notify the ASX about this decline in sales revenue as it previously released some sales volume forecasts and positive outlook for this period. Uh, So Midway has paid the $30,000 penalty in compliance with the infringement notice, uh, but it should be noted that a payment of an ASIC infringement notice is not an admission of guilt or liability. Right. Thank you very much for that update, Dan. So uh, Midway limited $33,000 infringement notice. Uh, We are heading off to the one o'clock news. After that, of course, checking in with the Bureau of Meteorology. And I'll get to some of your texts as well on 0487 991057. It's one. Hi, it's Mark Edwards here at the Cosmo Mine. A shout out to all the past workers that have worked here over the years. And you're listening to the Country Hour. Hello. Michelle Stanley with you on the show today. Interest rates are rising. Fuel is not getting cheaper. You might be feeling the pinch financially, but still, tons and tons of food is being thrown out before it even hits the supermarket shelves. Perfectly fine edible food. Coming up in a sec, you'll hear about a move to reduce that food waste. As long as it's not bad, it should be used. Just a waste, you know, people can make use of it. I'm okay with a crooked cucumber, you know. <laughs> it still tastes the same, good good for you. You'll also jump on a live export vessel to meet a veteran stocky on board. To an extent, I have probably the easiest job in the world. <laughs> if you like sheep. <laughs> You've got to like sheep to like my job. Um, I literally walk the decks basically all day, every day. 
You'll hear what she's doing all day, every day, and how a 26-year-old becomes a veteran. That coming up before 1.30. On the text line, 0487 1057. Al has been in touch. He says he's been a farmer in Humpty Doo for 25 years. And the problem with the produce, things like yam beans, for example, is that people buy potatoes and carrots. He says there's no interest in locally grown tropical produce. So that's one thing holding people back, according to Al. And Stephen and Catherine says yam beans and ginger grows in the nursery. So I guess it can be done if you'd like to give it a crack. But you heard from Bluey earlier out at Organic Ag, uh, Organic Australian Grown. Um, and he's wondering, maybe sitting in the tractor in the aircon is a little bit more comfortable. At seven minutes past one, let's check in on the weather now. Billy Lynch is with you from the Bureau of Meteorology. And there's been some rainfall. Billy, I believe you're barefoot like me after wetting your shoes on the way into work this morning. Yeah, we're not on the way into work across uh, to get some lunch oh, uh, about no. an hour ago. Yeah, yeah, it's still raining. And I was looking at the radar, the north, well, the top end is is pretty well covered. And um, what's happening with, with the, well, the rainfall in the last sort of day and today as well? Yeah, so the, the last 24 hours of rainfall, it was generally about 20 to 50 millimetres across the, the top end and the, the Vic River region. Um, so we saw Vic River crossing with 50 millimetres, uh, Gawley on the, the Daly River, 50 millimetres, Birimba, uh 49. Um, top of the list was Old Delamere, in the Victoria River catchment, that came in with 82 millimetres. Um, and you might remember we did have some severe thunderstorm warnings yesterday for the potential for some heavy falls. Since 9am today, um, most of the rainfall has been confined to the northwest corner of the top end, um, where we've seen Charles Point on the Cox Peninsula get about 25 millimetres, Mount Bundy's sitting on 34 millimetres. And it's a pretty good setup for heavy rainfall across the northwestern top end today. I guess the weather pattern is kind of rearranging itself. The wind patterns are starting to, to shift and move northwards towards the Arafura Sea. And this kind of setup, I've seen it a number of times before across the top end. And um, we have seen flash flooding around Darwin in this type of scenario. So we're certainly... Uh, on the watch for some heavy falls um, and have our finger on the, the pulse for putting out any severe thunderstorm warnings. But I guess from, from this point on until sort of uh, or overnight as well, that northwest top end is sort of in a good position to get some some heavy falls that could cause some flash flooding. Yesterday we heard that we were expecting maybe some build-up light conditions where it was going to be pretty warm and relatively dry is that still on the cards into the weekend and next week or have things changed? I wish things were changing, but no, okay. that is still on the cards. So enjoy the rain while it lasts. <laughs> That's right, yeah. So um, the wind patterns that are changing, as, as I mentioned at the moment, could set up for heavy rainfall, but... but uh, Tomorrow and the next day, we're going to see this uh, weak monsoon trough form through the Arafura Sea, and we're going to be on the dry side of that. So we're going to get a fair bit of dry air push up from central Australia. Um, not the dry, like it's still going to feel humid, but at the cloud level, some of that drier air is going to come through. So we're going to start to see some sunnier breaks next week. 
But um, I think before we get to next week, the top end's still looking in a pretty healthy state to get afternoon and evening thunderstorms rolling through from the southeast. Um, so it is a bit of a build-up like sort of pattern. Um, but initially it should feel like the wet season, but next week maybe the chances become a little less likely to get the rain. Okay, and we'll keep an eye out on, on any uh, severe thunderstorm warnings and floods and all, all of that fun stuff. Um, how about central Australia? It's pretty warm in the south. Yeah, dominated by a ridge of high pressure. So it's really limiting the chances for any rain to form. So the, the Simpson and the Barclay districts, sunny skies, a little bit of cloud building across the Barclay at the moment. The only chance of rain through central Australia is through the Tanami and down the western border regions. Just a slight chance of seeing some afternoon showers or thunderstorms, uh, which could be gusty, but not bring a lot of rainfall. But, but really, anyone down through central Australia today in the next couple of days mainly just going to notice the mostly clear skies and, and the very hot afternoon temperatures, um, daytime temperatures expected in the the low 30s, um, sorry, the, the high 30s and the low 40s. Is there any break in sight for that kind of weather? No, it looks like it's going to hang around, um, especially through the Barclay District and the Tanami, um, temperatures sitting pretty close to 40 for the next seven days. Um, yeah, even Alice Springs early next week is going to be pushing 40 degrees. So we are in a, probably a, quite a protracted hot spell for the southern half of the Northern Territory now. Mm, okay. How about the coastal waters for people keen to drop a line this weekend? Are they looking any good? Um, look, I mean, apart from the rainfall, uh, the, the winds for the harbour, probably looking at just those pretty standard westerlies of around 10 to 15 knots um, for you know today and into the weekend. The windiest is probably going to be across the, the Arafura Sea, so from Tiwi Islands through to the Gove Peninsula. Um, today we're forecasting winds of uh, up to 25 knots through there, so sea's obviously pretty choppy with that condition as well. Um, tomorrow similar, same with Saturday, probably by Sunday the wind's maybe starting to ease off a little bit. But um, it's going to be it's going to be a lot of rain out off the north coast, so um, that would be one sort of inhibiting factor for heading out on the water. Um, but yeah, hopefully that made sense um, as a bit of an overview. So winds getting up to twenty five knots off the the north coast, but a bit less elsewhere. Okay, thank you very much for that, Billy. We'll keep an eye on things. It sounds like it's changing a fair bit over the next couple of days. Thirteen past one on the country hour. Sticking with weather, heavy rain across North Queensland is starting to take its toll on the region's mango growers. Plenty of farmers haven't been able to harvest their mangoes as they're hampered by torrential rain and muddy orchards. Lucy Cooper reports. The Atherton Tablelands, considered the fruit bowl of the north, has received hundreds of millimetres of rain since December including daily downpours for most days this week. While the tropical north is famed for its wet season, where rainfall is measured in metres, the mango-growing hub in the Mareeba district is considerably drier, a welcome sign boasts of its 300 sunny days a year. The area has already received nearly 400 millimetres of rain this month, up from the usual 20 millimetres. 
Local grower John Nusafora, owner of one of the largest mango farms in the north, was hoping to start harvesting tomorrow. You don't pick mangoes while it's raining, uh, but uh, it is muddy and, uh, you know, your machinery gets dirty and, and it's hard going. Everything's hard going when there's mud around. Your feet are in mud. The workers are in mud. Your machines are sinking, not, in some cases, bogging. Uh, I had a story the other day where machines bogged. They, they had to stop working because tractors were bogging and, and, and that becomes a headache because you've got to buy more time. Buying more time, you can lose fruit. Fruit only gives you a certain amount of time to pick. And, um, and, and that's what we suffer is the, um, all, all the things that go with, um, with, with wet ground. Mr Nusafora said he was yet to get 60,000 trays of the fruit to market in an industry worth more than 50 million locally. There's a turning point and I dare say much more and we're at a turning point where we tend to lose um, quite a bit to marking and scarring. Rain can have internal issues on fruit uh, generally when ripening, not so much now. Um, so you could be packing it, sending it to the market, and we have an, an, a breakdown, let's say, for argument's sake, in the market. His wife, Debbie Nusafora, hopes the rain eases soon. The trees have had enough, we've had enough, we would like it to stop. It's probably been the most rain, I think, that we've had that I can remember. We've just had continual rain, and some days it's heavy, like massive downpour storms and some days it's just consistent all day all night but everything's saturated the trees are wet the ground's wet we've got erosion um, we've really had enough it's been a tough year for the mango industry with an oversupply of the fruit to the market in december leading to some of the lowest prices in years Prices for the so-called king of the fruit, the Kensington Pride variety, dipped to $1.50 last month on supermarket shelves. Chairman of Growcom, Joe Morrow, also grows mangoes around Mariba. He doesn't want consumers to worry as prices are not expected to rise. I think the late varieties, even though they've got to battle through the, through the wet and there may be delays in harvesting, will still, the volumes will still come out. Generally, when we get a lot of rain, which which unfortunately happens a lot, uh, is that you have a more downgrade. And what basically means there'll be less going of that particular product to the supermarkets, unless there's other outlets for it. And there may be um, some catering businesses in, in, the, in the southern markets that might take it, or processing up here. Uh, that There'll be more product going to those outlets rather than going to the markets. But generally, that's it's a downgrade. And the from a, from a supermarket point of view, you, they won't probably accept that sort of product. Or, uh, but maybe some of the smaller shops in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide will probably take some um, lower grade fruit because they'll see that and they, they, will, they, they know how to work that product through the system. So it, it'll just end up in different places. But unfortunately, that also means that some farmers will get less money because the premium money comes from um, what we sell to the, the supermarkets. Chairman of Growcom and Far North Queensland mango grower Joe Morrow finishing that report from Lucy Cooper. 17 past one on the Country Hour. A New South Wales parliamentary report is calling for changes to supermarket standards because they're leading to a lot of food being wasted. The report's calling for restrictions on what retailers can reject for visual reasons. The committee chair... Independent MP Alex Greenwich 
says the practice is unacceptable during a cost-of-living crisis. Hugh Hogan filed this report from the Sydney market. While shoppers search for a bargain, the industry has a growing problem. There's a lot of fruit and veg. If the shape or the size of it isn't up to standard, it does get thrown, um, unfortunately, in the tons. An inquiry has found supermarket standards are partly to blame. We've got perfectly good food that doesn't make some of the cosmetic standards of the big supermarket chains being forced into waste. A state parliamentary committee has suggested new laws to stop produce being rejected for minor visual defects. It will drive down the cost of fruit and vegetables, making it more accessible for more people. As long as it's not bad, it should be used. Just the waste, you know, people can make use of it. I'm okay with a crooked cucumber, you know. <laughs> it still tastes the same, good, good for you. Farmers say these standards aren't just wasteful, they're also giving consumers unrealistic expectations about fresh produce. Well, we don't make them in a factory. Now, we don't mix them like baking a cake. That's mother nature. The farming lobby says a lot of produce won't even leave the farm because of the long-standing practice. It's just getting out of control. In a statement, Woolworth says the standards are flexible depending on market conditions. It says it works with growers to reduce waste as much as possible. When you come here and you say, well, that wastage is crazy, you know, it shouldn't be happening. Come on, let's go look, yeah! A growing problem in an increasingly waste-conscious society. Hugh Hogan with that report and Coles was contacted but did not request, uh, did not respond to the request for comment. It's 20 past one. Jumping onto a live sheep export ship next, but here's Darius Rucker. It's Wagon Wheel. Darius Rucker and Wagon Wheel. It's 24 past one. Shoot underneath the great catch! Saturday, ABC Sports Summer of Cricket continues. This is a one-dayer you don't want to miss. Catch all the action of the women's one-day international between Australia and Pakistan. Every ball, every catch, every wicket and every big kit. Australia v Pakistan, live from Sydney. It's perfect! On ABC Radio, ABC Sport Digital and live on the ABC Listen app. Ah, Max's Turtle, cattle class, tow drive for Sherbet Livestock. We're all flat out, give us plenty of room on the road and you're listening to the Country Hour. Michelle Stanley with you today. Working as a stocky on a live export ship demands a special kind of person. You've got to be prepared to spend long days working below deck on a rolling ship looking after thousands of cattle or sheep during the voyage. And in this trip you're about to take, it's a two-week trip to the Middle East. For 26-year-old Tiffany Davey from regional Western Australia, it's her dream job. She's one of just two female sheep stockies working the monthly run from Fremantle to Kuwait, Oman and the UAE. She's working with a vet and a Bangladeshi crew to deliver the sheep in peak condition. After three years crisscrossing the Indian Ocean, Tiffany's now considered a veteran ship stocky and says she's got no intention to find something easier to do. I think I have a holistic view on, on feeding the world. 
and I have a lot of respect for the animal and I have a lot of respect for the processes involved in getting food to our plate and I think as a as an industry in Australia, we talk a lot about feeding the world, but I've got a really unique role that I'm able to... I'm sort of the middleman. I'm, I'm helping us get those animals over to those plates overseas. And, yeah, and I, as I said, just have respect for the animal itself. So I, I think it's a really, really important role. I take it, take it really seriously, making sure that the animals are looked after and looked after well, um, and supporting the boys on the ship as well in their confidence around the livestock. So your, your daily tasks, I've been watching you going around, looking in every pen, looking for those slightly poor ones or those that need a bit of treatment yeah. and, and pulling them out and, and obviously taking them to a little hospital <laughs> pen. And describe people, you know, what that process is. To an extent, I have probably the easiest job in the world. <laughs> if you like sheep, <laughs> you've got to like sheep to like my job. Um, I literally walk the decks basically all day every day just looking for sick in or injured animals and sometimes they're not even that sometimes you see an animal and you're like you're okay like you're not sick but I know you'd be more comfortable in the hospital pen and some some of them don't like putting their heads through the rails or others just might might not like their mates in the pen so it's just spotting those and yeah popping them into the hospital pen and just like working with the boys we've got a bangladeshi crew and that varies some ships will have a filipino crew or yeah because like as stock on board stock people we don't actually work for a specific live export company we um contract ourselves out to all different live export companies and we travel all around the world with with the livestock until they get to the port on the other side so yeah the crews vary but this this crew here they're bangladeshi boys so a lot of them are young and they, they care a lot but they haven't got that livestock experience so it's about supporting them and gaining confidence at spotting them as well and we're on oh, day three i think and they're getting better they yeah, today you were actually teaching them how to go and catch a sheep and drag it yeah. and get it out of the yeah bed. i've done it before with a few of these boys but it's um just the bare basics you know the best way to to you know pull a pull a sheep and lift it over the pen looking after the sheep and after the human just those bare like that makes their life easier and just better on the stock as well so i think i definitely underestimated the role i think the stock people on board play in supporting the crew and the crew they take those skills back to their countries now you're well aware as many people are that you know the live sheep trade has been a controversial one in in the view of the australian public and there's a there's a cloud hanging over its its future uh, how do you how do you when you go and meet with your contemporaries back in australia kind of explain the the care and and attention that is that a lot of the old stories yeah. of the way that the trade was was conducted yeah i think people only know what they know and people only know what they see and some of the footage that's out there you know i don't like seeing it's not great so i can respect where people are coming from when they ask questions about the live export industry and i support that i'm willing to have a conversation at any point any time about the industry i think the way i describe it is just overseeing i say it's quite broad overseeing the welfare of the livestock on board but i think it's more than that it's it's just engaging with the crew it's just being there on the deck with the livestock making sure they're okay just looking for making sure they have the ability to display those natural displays of behavior like you've you know see them they have little routines going to the water trough going to the feed you know they all camp up by three o'clock 
out in a paddock sheep will have a routine on the ship they have a routine so it's just basically a big floating floating feedlot it's like a feedlot and we're just we're floating on the ocean so that's probably the best way I can describe it That's stockwoman Tiffany Davey with Mark Bennett aboard the Al Masila making their way to Kuwait. That's the Country Hour for today. I'll catch you tomorrow. It's 1.30.